Hi everybody, um, my name is James and I'm going to be doing some PSAT questions for you today and hopefully we, we both learn something. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm a little nervous. This is my first time. Um, so yeah, so the basis of this is I'm gonna, I'm on the reading portion of a practice exam and don't actually do this in a PSAT. I'm just saying it's not going to work out, but I'm only doing this because I need entertainment and I'm sure you need entertainment. So, yeah. So, I finished the first story and I keep forgetting that there's an exam sheet that exists. But, yeah. Um, so, without further ado, let's get started. <laughs> Excuse me. So questions 10 through 19 are based on the following passage and table. You can't see it, but there is a table there. This passage is adapted from a 2014 article about Canada and the War of 1812. Fun. <clears throat> Spanning a distance of more than 1,500 miles, the border between Canada and the United States has been called the longest undefended international boundary in the world. This is true to some extent in that neither the U.S. or Canada maintains a military presence at the border. But as anyone who has crossed from one side of Niagara Falls to the other knows, civilian law enforcement is present and accounted for at checkpoints on both sides of the boundary, where entrants are monitored and customs law administered. Customs laws administered. That doesn't make sense. Partly because of our cultural similarities and partly because of the remarkable amiability of our diplomatic relations over the past 150 years, it can sometimes seem almost as though the distinction between Canada and the United States is more one of policy than one of practice. But this has not always been the case. There was a time when the kinship between these two nations was far more dubious, particularly in the years prior to 1867 when Canada was granted its dominion status and thus its independence from the British Parliament. In 1812, U.S. President James Madison declared war on the British Empire. There were a variety of reasons for the declaration. British-U.S. relations were strained by England's attempts to thwart international trade between the U.S. and France, with whom the British were already at war, and on several occasions, the Royal Navy had endeavored to con conscript American sailors by force. However, perhaps no cause for war was more compelling in the U.S. than the desire to expand the nation into northern territories of modern-day Ontario and modern-day Quebec, which is still British colonies at the time. With the United States paralyzed by partisan infighting and confused about its federal military policies and Canada's meager militias, practically unaided by British army, which was largely embroiled in fighting against Napoleon's forces in Spain, neither side was well prepared for a war. Nonetheless, in July of that year, Congress launched its untrained 35,000-man army into the first stage of a four-pronged offensive starting at Detroit, then Niagara, then Kingston, and finally at Montreal. Madison, who anticipated the conflict's resolution in a matter of weeks, had as grossly overestimated the, the efficacy... I, I don't remember that word, of the American military as he had underestimated the tenacity of New England, New England Federalist opposition to the war. 
By adopting a cautious defensive strategy, Native American and Canadian militias led by British officers successfully rebuffed the invaders and eventually, following the surrender of General William Hull to British Major General Isaac Brock and Shawnee leader Tecumseh, captured not only Detroit but most of the Michigan Territory as well. The war dragged on for two years with little progress on either side. By concentrating their defenses in Ontario, the Canadians left Quebec vulnerable to invasion along the St. Lawrence River. Consequently, the U.S. seized portions of Upper Canada, but because of a combination of poor military leadership, logistical obstacles, and inadequate funding, never managed to take the key positions of Montreal or Quebec City. By April of 1814, Napoleon was defeated in Europe, and a greater brunt of the British military fell upon the United States. The primary theaters of war, in turn, shifted from the Canadian frontier to coastal American cities such as Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and New Orleans. Canada's role in the conflict was by that time essentially at an end, though fighting continued intermittently in the north until the signing of the Treaty of Ghent in December of that year. Since the War of 1812, Canada and the U.S. have maintained a warm and neighborly diplomatic relationship. The two nations fought as allies in both world wars and collaborated closely throughout the Cold War with NORAD. More recently, the Canada-United States Free Trade Agreement implemented at the beginning of 1988 ushered in a tremendous increase in commerce and business between the two. A shared British colonial heritage and the English language have provided all the common ground necessary to make our two neighboring nations fast friends, but the now antique batteries and ramparts that still lie in the St. Lawrence River Stand as testament to time when our international intercourse was far less friendly than it is today. So there is a table about Canadian-American trade, which I don't know if we'll need to deal with that yet, but we'll have to see. So, question number 10. It can be inferred from the passage that as a whole, that the author believes that many present-day readers of this piece are a knowledgeable about the history of the major battles in the different military theaters in the War of 1812, b. well-informed about the difficult early relations that the U.S. and Canada had in the early 1800s, c. eager to use the information in this reading to advocate the increased militarization of the undefended undefended U.S.-Canada border, or d. Generally unaware of the past hostility between the U.S. and Canada, given the, two pres- given the present-day friendliness between the two countries. Now, from what I've seen, from looking back in the passage, um, on the time, let me see, where is it? It says in lines 20 through 25, says, there was a time when the kinship between these two nations was far more dubious, particularly in the years prior to 1867. So, in that case, it wouldn't be A nor C. So it's either B or D, which, from what I know, from the word dubious, um, it is definitely not B. It's gonna gotta be D. No, I don't know if I got this wrong. I'm not that smart. I'm just going off of what I think. So, and this is from like last year and the year before. So I'm kind of just going off of that. Because there's an answer T somewhere in this book. We'll figure this out later. 11. 
Which of the following does the author argue was the most significant motivation for U.S. citizens who wanted to go to war with Canada in the early 1800s? A. Vengeance towards the British. B. Territorial ambitions. C. The continued capture of American sailors. Or D. Defense against Native American incursions. Now let's get one thing straight. If I'm not mistaken, it doesn't say anything about the capture of American sailors, even though it did happen. It never mentions it. So, C is off the table. And it did mention territory in this reading. Um, oh, actually, yeah, it did. It did mention the sailors, but it probably... See, it says in 35 through 40... However, perhaps no cause for war was more compelling in the U.S. than the desire to expand the nation. Expanding the nations are key. So, 11 is B. Territorial ambitions. And which choice provides the evidence we answered for the answer to the previous question? 33. Week 35 has a continued capture of American sailors. However, that's not what we're looking for. We found it within C, 35 through 40. As it is used in line 22, dubious most nearly means congenial, suspect, familial, and loathsome. Now, if we read it back, um, we can do, I do a little plug in and play, and as my math teacher always says. So first, in general, there was a time when the kinship between these two nations is far more congenial. See, I don't know what congenial means, and I'm not looking anything up. Um, suspect. There was a time when the kinship between these two nations was more suspect. Doesn't sound right. Familial. Also doesn't sound right for the pure reason that I think I know what it means, but I also don't know what it means. So I'm really just going in blind. So the answer, since it's mentioned in 10 that there were hostilities, it would be loathsome. I apologize for my breathing. I tend to breathe heavy. So, as it is used in line 56, tenacity most nearly means determination, anger, existence, function. C. Tenacity. Underrated the determination of the New England Federalist opposition. The anger of the New England Federalist opposition. The existence. I dot that's it. Or function. Function definitely wouldn't separate. So it's it could be either A or B. So the tenacity. It doesn't sound like a good thing. So I'm going to say it's B. Anger. Like I said, like this podcast title reads, I'm attempting this. I'm not going in knowing what I'm doing completely. So, based on the fourth paragraph, 
lines 66 through 86, which of the following was not an obstacle to a lasting U.S. victory in Quebec? The quality of U.S. generals, the lack of good transportation supplies, a lack of funding, and a strong Canadian defense. So we start off within with the war dragged, and then we end of off, I believe, let's see, six, no, no, 86 would be December of that year. So let's see, we gotta wait until it's mentioned. The war dragged on for two years, but with little progress on either side. So there's little progress on either side. By concentrating their defenses in Ontario, the Canadians left Quebec vulnerable to invasion along the St. Lawrence River. Consequently, the U.S. seized portions of Upper Canada, but because of a combination of poor military leadership, logistical obstacles, and inadequate funding, so a lack of funding would not be an answer. So C is out. Never managed to take the key positions of Montreal or Quebec City. By April of 1814, Napoleon was defeated in Europe and a greater brunt of the British military fell upon the United States. The primary theaters of war in turn shifted from the Canadian frontier to coastal American cities such as Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and New Orleans. Canada's rule in the conflict was by that time essentially at an end, though fighting continued intermittently in the north until the signing of the Treaty of Ghent in December that year. So, poor military leadership was mentioned. Straw lack of funding was mentioned. So it's up to B or D. If you look back, um, let's see. So the Canadians left Quebec vulnerable. So in that case, um, it would be D, strong Canadian defense. Because they left it vulnerable, meaning their defense was probably shit. I'm sorry, I don't, don't kill me for saying shit. I'm sorry, but I had to. Let's see. According to the passage, the North American battles of 18 or 1812 gradually shifted to being fought and led by great generals to being fought and led by elected representatives, decisive victories by the British to decisive victories by the United States, being fought in the wilderness to being fought in urban areas and British to French to British military involvement. Okay. Um the wilderness Okay, I don't think the wilderness was really mentioned much. So it's not being fought in the wilderness. Um, the thing is, the French to British military involvement, 1814, Napoleon fell, was defeated. So that could be it. But let's look back. Decisive victories by the British, decisive victories by the United States. Let's see. Um, so it's not the British victories. Definitely not the great generals, probably. It would be the, the French to British. 
sorry, I just needed a breath there. Because <coughs> I'm talking too fast. Which choice provides the best evidence to answer the previous questions? 83 to 86. Let's see. It wouldn't be 83 to 86. Let's see, 78 to 82. Okay, um, definitely not that. 75 to 78. So it would be 75 to 78. Oh, so the table is being mentioned. The table after the passage is most helpful when quantifying the qualitative description given by what word in the passage. Collaborated, line 91. Tremendous, line 95. Neighboring, line 99. And intercourse, line 103. Um, intercourse was mentioning, like, the relationship. So, this is not really mentioning trade. It is kind of mentioning trade, but it's not. Neighboring mentions the nations in itself. It doesn't have anything to do with exports. Tremendous in line 95, tremendous increase in commerce. Okay, yeah, collaborated, collaborated closely throughout the Cold War. So it would be tremendous, B. According to lines 92 through 96, a free trade agreement between the U.S. and Canada was implemented in 1988. Based on the data provided in the table, what type of business can we reasonably conclude that most <coughs> my apologies would most likely have had the greatest immediate benefit in the first year of the treaty becoming law? So it does mention that. It's like the commerce and business. So, A, a company that manufactures cars. No. B, a company that produces raw materials from Canada to manufacture products in the U.S. factories. Um, 92 through 96. Tremendous increase. Like, commerce and business. Like, imports and exports. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, a U.S. company that, let's see, C, Canadian company that manufactures products exclusively for the government? No. D, a U.S. company that provides retail services to customers? No. It would be B. Because it mentions them both instead of one. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Should I do one more, like 20 to 28? Yeah, I'll do one more. Um, so 20 to 20 are based on the following passage. This passage is adapted from the article, Woman Suffrage Must Be Nonpartisan by Susan B. Anthony in August 1896. Okay, let's do this. And I'm sorry if I mess up the Roman numerals. I don't know Roman numerals. I, I physically can't. All right. 
The different women's suffrage committees of Southern California, it is understood, are planning to do some very effective campaign work on behalf of the 11th Amendment by forming allied women's clubs to the old parties. The plan, it is argued, will be perfectly consistent owing to the fact that the Republicans, populists, and prohibitionists all put a women's suffrage plank in their state platforms and that while the democracy refused this, many of the delegates from this end of the state favored it and are staunch supporters of the movement. It is considered good politics, quote-unquote good politics, to work in connection with instead of independent of the present organized political parties. The plan of action proposed in the above item from Los Angeles in yesterday's call would be most disastrous to the women's suffrage amendment. Everyone must see that for part of the suffrage woman to thus ally themselves with the Republican Party, another portion with the Democrat Party, another with the Populist, another with the Prohibition, another with the Nationalist, and yet another with the Socialist Labor Party, would be to divide and distract public thought from women as suffragists to women, w women as Republicans, Populists, etc. To do this may be good politics, for the different political parties, but it would surely be very bad politics. Amendment number 11, I think that's what it is. I don't remember. Excuse me. It doesn't need a profit to see that allied clubs to the old parties will turn the thought of the women themselves to proselyting for members to their respective political party clubs instead of each and every one holding herself nonpartisan or better, all partisan, pleading with every man of every party to stamp yes to that amendment. Number 11, for the purpose of ensuring success to his party at the coming election or to win the good will of the women for the state of future partisan ends. But instead, pleading with everyone to thus vote that he may help to secure to all the women of California who can read the Constitution in the English language, their citizens' right to vote to help the political party of their choice in all elections in good times to come. Oh, oh. oh no. I, I missed it. Okay, my apologies. I tried to push my chair in, but it fell. Of course, each of the political parties, old and new, would be glad of the help of the women throughout this full campaign. But who can fail to see that the women who should join one alliance would thereby lose their influence with the men of each of the other parties? They would at once be adjudged partisans, working for the interest of the party with which or to which they were allied. Women of California, you cannot keep the goodwill and win the good votes of all the good men of all the good parties of the state by allying yourselves with one or the other or all of them. You must stand as disenfranchised citizens, outlaws, shut out of the body politic, humble supplicants, various beggars at the feet of all men and all parties alike. The vote of the humblest man of the humblest party is of equal value to that of the proudest millionaire of the largest party. And every woman must see that if the vast majority of the women of the state should either the Los Angeles plan ally themselves to either one of the parties, the men of all the others might as well, take alarm, lest their party's chances of success would be vastly lessened if women were allowed to vote, and so from mere party interest be influenced to stay up no at amendment number 11. My apologies for that. 
that was a metal thing with a bunch of pens and stuff in it. Apparently, I'm very much clumsy. It is very clear to every student of politics that is what good politics for political parties is mighty poor politics for a reform measure dependent upon the votes of the members of all parties. It will be time enough for the women of California to enroll themselves as Republicans, Democrats, Populists, etc. after they have the right to vote secured to them by the elimination of the word male from the suffrage clause of the Constitution. And to work most efficiently to get the right to become a voting member of one or another of the parties of the state, women must now hold themselves aloof from the affiliation with each and all of them. That was a lot to take in, especially for me. The primary purpose of this passage is to A, confront a geographical region, B, dis dispute a historical recollection, recollection, C, attack a gender identity, D, make a tactical argument. Now, I highly doubt this is a geographical region or to attack a gender identity. This is really kind of a call to action. <coughs> so I'd say this is D, make a tactical argument. So I was right. In order to ratify the 11th Amendment, the author most directly encourages women to focus on winning over which group of men. A, the leaders of major political parties. B, when men who are less fortunate. C, literate, educated men. D, men from all walks of life. So, this one, you really got to pay attention. Um, really, it's not about much. Um, okay. So it's definitely not men who are less fortunate or literate, educated men. It's it really doesn't mention much of the. It mentions like the humblest man of the humblest party is of equal value, the the proudest millionaire of the largest party. <coughs> so we would be D. Men from all walks of life. Which option gives the best evidence? Let's see. You see, it has of all men of all parties, so it's D. Author mostly, most strongly suggests that the interests of the political parties and of women are A, aligned, B, uniform, C, divergent, or B, belligerent. belligerent. So again, this is a clean slate. I don't know what belligerent means. Um, I do know what aligned, uniform, and divergent are. And of women. Let's see. Just trying to read back here. It's like the political parties and of women because it's like mentioning good politics. Apparently, since like divergent, the thoughts of Amendment Eleven is separate from the like men's view, so it would be divergent. Either that or it'd be uniform. I don't. Know. Which option gives the best evidence? It would be. It would be twenty nine three two is A line six ten B line three sixteen. 
C lines 29, 32, D. It would be C. I'm using line 12, Stosh, most closely means A, strong, B, democratic, C, disloyal, or D, C, disloyal, and D, mistaken. Staunch. Are staunch supporters? It's like strong supporters. It would be like A, strong. The author uses quotation marks about the phrase good politics in line 14 primarily to um, A, properly cite her past writings, B, distance herself from a point of view, C, predict the likely course of events, or D, explain a controversial position. Um, it is really controversial what is good, what is bad, so it's D. Um, used in line 43, ends most closely mean A, completions, B, objectives, C, sorrows, or D, casualties. Gotta look for 43. Okay. Future partisan ends. Let's see. Let's see what we have. I've got to remember where it was in. It does need a prof to see that the allied clubs and the old parties will turn the thought of women themselves through proselyting from members of their respective political party clubs instead of each and every one holding herself nonpartisan or better all partisan, pleading with every man of every party to stamp yes in amendment number 11, not for the purpose of ensuring success to his party at the coming election or to win the goodwill of women for the state for future partisan ends. It would be... Um, but like we read the rest instead of pleading with everyone to thus vote that he may secure to all women of California who can read the Constitution. So it would probably be completions. Okay. Sentences in lines 83 to 88, it will be Constitution. Um, mainly the A, encourage women to be patient in fighting for the political goal, B, underscore the importance of identifying oneself with a political party, C, demonstrate how a historical proceeding applies to a modern situation, or D, explain how women will achieve elected positions. And hold themselves aloof with affiliation. Well, officially, all right. I think it would be um, A. Okay, so that's all for this. Um, if you want a part two or anything, let me know. And I will get work on that. Bye.